Hello, my name's Adam Spring, and this is a Remotely Interested podcast. In fact, it's the first Remotely Interested podcast. I'm joined by my producer, Trevor Bayondich. Trevor, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Adam, especially for our first. Me too, and I'm quite excited to be here and doing it. All right, now I have a quick question. Far away. All right, why did you decide to start this podcast? I decided to do this podcast because I want to look at the potential cross-pollination between technology-driven markets. I've been working in the high-end technology field for an extended period of time now, and the one thing I've noticed is people don't necessarily talk to each other in the way that you would expect them to, or communicate their stories to one another and how they're using technologies. So I've decided to do this to get people talking. So who do we have for our first guest? So our first guest is from Pixar Studios. He's worked on Ghostbusters 2. He's worked on Robocop 2. He also worked on The Nightmare Before Christmas. And for about 15 years, he's been working with Pixar as a clay model maker of all of the characters that they feature in those films before they get digitized and put into computer software like RenderMan. Oh, wow. Now, weren't you also saying that maybe our viewers don't know, but from our little talk beforehand, that he also has another job? Yes, he does. He has a startup company called Paleo Mill with another member of Pixar Studios, and they 3D laser scan and 3D print dinosaur bones. Well, that sounds interesting. I look forward to hearing what Greg has to say. Now, since this is our first podcast, maybe we should let the listeners know that we have a certain format that we are packaging our podcast in for them to actually consume. Yeah, that's a good point. So the way it's going to work is we're going to have an open-ended interview, we're going to let it run, and we're going to split it into two parts. And then at the end of part two, I'm going to ask Greg to have the listeners go away with five things that he thinks would be useful for them to learn about. That could be a website, it could be a book, it could be any source of information whatsoever. So without further ado, I present Greg Dykstra. Okay, my name is Adam Spring and I'm here today with Greg Dykstra from Pixar Animation Studios. Hi Greg, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you doing, Adam? I'm great. Thank you very much. So before we start, tell us a little bit about you and what you do do at Pixar. I'm a, I am a character uh, sculptor and designer. Uh, so I actually work in clay to help uh, us figure out the designs of the characters. Uh, sometimes this is happening. Uh, it starts with sketches. Um, usually there's drawings of some kind. Um, and, it, and then... Uh, and then it'll go to uh, sculpture. It'll go come to me, and I'll I'll either be interpreting very rough ideas and helping develop the character, or I'll be working out uh, the designs with uh, more detail, uh, with with drawings that have more detail, and and just kind of proving uh, the design, making sure the director can see it, uh, you know, rotate it, touch it, do all kinds of things in a physical medium in real light. And then once we're happy with those designs, then then that uh, that sculpt can be scanned and put in the computer, and either uh, the data can be worked on directly, or um, or it can be uh, you know used as reference and modified as needed uh, as as we go through the process of figuring out how the thing will move, and uh, and we may need to make changes along the way. Okay, that's fantastic. You kind of uh, you kind of touched upon something I was going to actually talk to you about a little bit later on. Um, but with regards okay. from taking the physical object into the computer and I guess creating it either a digital mold or basically taking part the parts of it that you want into the computer, what sort of scanning devices are you using? Are you using optical triangulation or are you using things like Next Engine? What sort of things are you using to do that? Um, the the we've we've used a few different things over the years, but but what we're doing uh, mostly right now is uh, structured light uh, scanner that we have at Pixar. 
and uh, and so it's it's uh, what we what we get is uh, just a, a simple uh, point cloud, and then that that can be um, the the software that we use can recognize that that is a shape, and it can basically uh, you know the the modeler that's doing stuff has to of course come up with this uh, version of it that is uh, simplified, that it has you know, far fewer points than, than the original scan. Uh, those, those points also have to be organized with spans in between, and, and each one of those has to eventually have a control, or some of, uh, many of them have to have a control put on, on the AVARs, those points, and, and create um, a character that can be moved and, and that everything distorts correctly because of that new mesh that they build. Um, Okay, that's fantastic. That's, 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 yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, with regards to the actual physical sculpture itself, um, obviously I'm assuming it's got wireframe and things like that. Um, what were your influences sort of growing up to want to become a sculptor and things like that? Were you really into things like Ray Harryhausen and stuff like that? Or how did you get to where you kind of are, are now? Um, yeah, definitely uh, Ray Harryhausen was a, was a big part of it. I... I um... Uh, I was always making drawings from my earliest childhood, and uh, I was always a nature lover. There was always a number of memorable inspirations, though, that, that kind of collectively attracted me down my career path. Um, the first thing I can remember, like being a real um, change in my in my approach to, or, or the way I felt about the world, was when I saw the original Planet of the Apes, which was in 1968. It was at a drive-in when I was five, and it and it just blew me away. I remember knowing that those were regular people in ape makeup, and that somehow um, someone had to regular people had to have created the stuff I was seeing. Um, and and I I knew it was their job, but I don't know if I, it really occurred to me that they were getting paid for it. I just know I wanted to make that kind of stuff myself. And as soon as I got home, I started you know experimenting. I started. Uh, trying to make my lips tight and rigid and kind of try to talk with the restrictions the actors had talked with. But then, uh, then I discovered silly putty would actually stick to your skin for a while. So I made my own temporary ape makeup appliances and I ran around the house, look, uh, imitating Cornelius. Uh, my brother Adam was soon joining in and we were both acting like apes, but anyway, it seemed like that movie was a gateway f for me, uh, to other movie apes like King Kong and mighty Joe young, which in turn ignited my love of monster movies of all kinds, um, of stop motion, Ray Harryhausen, monster, uh, movie monster makeup. Uh, and then there were dinosaurs. Uh, also in 1968, um, it was a big year for me. I found my first fossil, a little trilobite. Um, my dad and brothers and I were on a canoe trip, and when I found it, I was so puzzled. It, it looked like a pill bug, like a roly-poly, but it was made of stone. And my dad told me it was once alive, millions of years ago, how he, he said how everything we were seeing then was completely different. It was an alien world with strange creatures and wondrous plants. And uh, I, my mind, my imagination just exploded that moment. I mean, uh, honestly, it was like a, uh, like a physical sensation. And uh, I could never go back after that. I could never be my old self. It, it lit a love of pre the prehistoric world that would be with me for the rest of my life. Uh, this excitement that has never died. That's, and, um, uh, 
yeah, oh, I mean, it's just it's it's really interesting because like I can hear the enthusiasm through your sort of voice of like, yeah, you suddenly became aware of like it was a reality changing experience almost. And the thing I found interesting yeah. when I was actually sort of re- doing a little bit of research, I mean, obviously we've met before at Pixar and things like that. But when I was doing yeah. research for this, I didn't realize that you actually get sent out to like, for instance, when you were doing things like Ratatouille, you'd actually get sent to Paris and sort of like go to the restaurants and see, you know, how the reality of the actual worlds you're creating actually work. And I think that's really sort of fascinating that you get to sort of do that because it must be, it's kind of trans, I guess for you, it's kind of translating the everyday into this completely made up world, but that must be one of the most difficult things you can actually do. Yeah. Yeah, it is. A lot of times, you know, the, our task is, is to, I mean, in caricaturing the world, we're we're looking for the things that, you know, the information that is really important, you know, in someone's face or in, you know, or even um, in like trying to uh, distill what makes uh, people, for, for me, it's mostly people uh, in Paris look like, you know, a French population. And, and, and there actually are, you know, very subtle differences from, from country to country that that you can see um you know if you're in australia or if you're in france the the group of people you you see as a whole might have some certain common traits you're not going to see quite the same in other countries and so it's that kind of observation uh of of the important details that make that work uh that we have to figure out what to exaggerate about about any of the characters we're doing whether they're human or not and then what what details have to kind of be uh, suppressed, kind of uh, simplified and made less important, so that ultimately what we get is is kind of a, um, a highlighted version of, of of those things, and that works even with completely made up uh, characters like like the monsters and Monsters Incorporated or something. And uh, but yeah, it's uh, Pixar has always, and I've always been very impressed about this. That they they've always done lots of research for every film, and and we dig up all kinds of stuff. We want to know the facts before we decide how to change those facts, because we do, you know, to get the right impression, uh, to to get the right emotion that we want out of the film, and to help you know tell the story. We are going to you know make changes. You know, for instance, we have fish that talk you know, in Nemo. So we have to decide, okay, well, how can we get them to convey emotion? How can we, you know, get them to talk and react the way that we need them to, um, but do it in a way that as much as we can respects what they really look like or what, how they really behave. So it's, it's this balance of, of the human, uh, need to, to connect to these characters, um, and, and for these characters to perform. Uh, with all the research we've done and trying to be true to that. Yeah. So it's, but, but we, we definitely want to know what we're cheating before we start cheating. You know, we don't want to be just randomly um, producing this stuff without, without knowing the, the truth behind the subject. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting for me because it seems as though that you've done, you know, in terms of your career and in terms of, you know, the technology arc with all of this. Because, I mean, I didn't realize that you worked on stuff like Ghostbusters 2, which for me was just sort of like, you know, when I first met you, I would have been like just totally awestruck because basically Ghostbusters is such a big film for me as a child. But in terms of like the technologies we, that we used on that to where we yeah. are now, I mean, what are the biggest changes that you've noticed in terms of, 
translating, you know, I, I, I suppose the suspension of disbelief is where I'm coming at from this, is what do you think the biggest changes are with regards to the technology and creating that suspension of disbelief that you've just that you've just kind of described? Um, I think I think the um, the kind of visual concepts um, have remained largely the same, but but yeah, how to like how the stuff that's possible to put on the screen uh, and the way you do it has changed a lot. And when I was doing you know movies like Ghostbusters two or RoboCop two or any of those, the the computer presence in in that work was almost non-existent we the computers were much more used for um you know uh, bookkeeping for instance in 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 film like if i was working in an effects shop uh then much more that for that than the actual effects um we uh we would shoot um i did a lot of work related to the stop motion effects that we were doing and um, like like on RoboCop 2, and we had these motion control systems that that controlled the camera as well as would allow us to do some stuff with these stop motion puppet characters, and and we had a little controller unit called a Tondro controller unit that was was probably my biggest uh, association with anything computer like um, for for many years, and that was uh, and that was just like not much more than a calculator with this little narrow screen that told you what codes you had just pressed and, and, you know, how to activate them. Um, so when I, uh, I, when I came to nightmare before Christmas, uh, we were starting to get a little bit more of the computer world in that, but really, again, it was, it was very simplified stuff. It was, it was more about, um, like helping the timing on, on, uh, figuring, like figuring out how we were going to do, uh, expression sculpts, how they were working. And we could look at one or two frames uh, on a video toaster. We called it. Um, so you were Amiga but, users but, then. I'm sorry. You were an Amiga user then. Amiga was video toaster, wasn't it? Or video toaster uh, was Amiga. Yes, I, I believe. So. I believe so. I believe that's what it was. I, uh, but it was, yeah, it was very simple, um, very simple stuff. And uh, and I and actually it was shortly after Nightmare Before Christmas. I'd had a great time, but it had been a few years. Uh, since I started thinking about taking a break from film and, and so there was this gap, I, I decided to quit film for about five years and, and it was on nightmare before Christmas that I started meeting, uh, some of the people that would become future Pixar employees. Um, Pixar was, was really just getting started on their first feature film. And, uh, a guy named Joe Ramft, um, was the first guy to suggest to me that I start working at Pixar. But I didn't even really understand what Pixar was. I had no idea, and it was even harder for me to picture how I would fit into it, because because everything everything they were doing was you know uh, computer based stuff, and uh, they 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 came to me uh, a couple of times uh, you know over those years to try to talk to me about you know working there. But um, let's see if I have. Uh, so you were playing hard to get then, were uh, you? <laughs> I'm sorry. What? Oh, so you, I was, yeah, I was kind of playing hard to get. Uh, the um, it's like uh, I think it was around 1996. A guy named Bob Polly asked me to join. I think I just ran into him in, in Walnut Creek, California, and I turned him down. And and uh, it, I, the biggest problem was I just still couldn't see how it fit in. I, I wasn't a computer guy. I didn't understand why they were asking me to to come to Pixar. And it was uh, in 1999, Joe Ramped again, he and I talked and he wanted me to come along. And by this time, uh, 
you know, they'd put out two movies, A Bug's Life and Toy Story, and they were both great. And I just started thinking, well, you know, obviously they think I could fit in. So maybe it'd be nice to work with this strange little studio um, with these first two movies that were great. And uh, thanks to Joe, I interviewed and it was the longest interview I'd ever had. It was four hours with 11 people. Wow. Um, but oh, even wow. then, yeah. And even then, um, uh, after they'd given me a tour of the place, uh, I met with Ed Catmull. I'm sitting in his office. Ed Catmull is uh, Pixar's president. Um, and Ed's talking. He's this brilliant guy. But I was already feeling overwhelmed by what I had seen and heard. I, um, how, how was I ever going to learn how to do all this stuff is what I was thinking. So I interrupted Ed. I, I told him he shouldn't hire me, believe it or not. And uh, he was he was confused. He asked me why I would say something like that. And I told him, I'm I'm a computer idiot, really. I don't even know how to email, <laughs> which was true at the time. And uh, Ed, though, he was wonderful. He just relaxed and said, we will always need artists and we can teach you the other stuff. So so now it's been 14 years with Pixar and it's really been the best job I've ever had. Yeah, I mean that. That's I mean, just for people who don't know, who Ed Catmull is he pretty much created a lot of basically what's computer graphics today. In fact, I think his his hand was actually the first ever computer generated thing for Future World, wasn't it? In the nineteen seventies. That yeah, that's true. He, yeah, he he really he's uh, he's our president now. You know, and he and this Pixar was always his uh, dream. I mean, back in the seventies, he he's he almost immediately started thinking about. Um, he would love for the computer stuff that he was designing to somehow be applied to film someday. Um, and, and, and he held on to that dream, you know, all of this time. And he's been, he, he, he kind of made Pixar what it is. He kind of formed Pixar. This is, you know, what, uh, this is a manifestation of Ed's uh, imagination from so long ago. And, uh, and it did, it did work. I mean, it took a lot, you know, we needed, you know, if, if John Lasseter hadn't come along, if Steve Jobs hadn't come along, you know, this might not have never happened. But but it was um, this perfect combination of ingredients that, that came together over the years and, and eventually got, you know, Pixar started. But, yeah, Ed already had had been pioneering the field of computer graphics and moving computer graphics. So So from the moment you sort of started at Pixar to sort of now, how is your sort of role evolved over the years because i imagine it, it must have done just by you know the way everything has changed and you know obviously the way pixar revolutionized really how filmmaking and certainly animation was sort of being done so how has your role evolved over the years uh when i when i first started i think my job was a lot like what i did on nightmare before christmas and that was just it was specifically to get um you know these characters designed and realized in, in, in three dimensions, but, uh, and that was, uh, Finding Nemo was very, that's, that was my first Pixar film. And then, uh, immediately after that, in fact, they were, they were kind of overlapping. I started working on The Incredibles and it was during The Incredibles that, that the first, like this first evolution maybe started happening with my job. Um, the, and the Incredibles was the first time Pixar, I mean, we'd had humans in our films before, but it was the first time that Pixar, had a film that was based on humans that the, the that there were you know there was uh, they weren't background characters anymore they were they were the the main cast and uh and to do that was going to be a challenge we needed to make them you know look really good and and Brad Bird the director you know ha had some very specific ideas uh Tony Facilli um 
Teddy Newton, uh, Lou Romano, these are all guys in the art department that were that wanted this stuff to go forward. And and uh, actually, uh, I was heading upstairs at one point uh, and met Ed. Just we happened to run into each other, and he was just telling me Ed Catmull, and he just was telling me that one of the things we really needed to work out was uh, how we could get sculpts of expressions, these extremes of the expressions that the face would make uh, for these characters. We had to work that out. We had never really had anything that was very reliable that way. And so it, it kind of rested on, on my shoulders along with other people in the art department to try to figure out how we could get um, that to work. Because it's one thing to uh, come up with a digital version of a bust of, say, Bob from The Incredibles, um, but to make that face have a full acting range that looks good with every expression and that feels like Bob, it feels consistent with his personality and consistent with his relaxed form. Um, it, it's actually a lot of work, and you have to really be conscientious of uh, how you create uh, every form within his face. You know, what, what happens to, you know, his nose? How does the wrinkle that goes down his cheek to the corner of his mouth, how does that behave when it goes up? If he's got dimples in the side of his cheek, do they disappear? Do they stretch? Um, you know, the angles of his chin, the way his eyebrows work, the way they wrinkle between the nose, all of that stuff not only had to be figured out uh, individually, like uh, what, what, a, what we, we had we created like five expressions for Bob and it kind of, they kind of became standards that we used here for a long time. And, and one was called squash. One was called stretch. Um, uh, both of those just basically are the face as scrunched up as it can be and, and as wide open as it can be. And, and so it represents two extremes uh, mm -hmm. on this, you know, on this continuum. Um, but then, then we also, there's variations on that and we needed to know, you know, what, what did a smile look like? You know, what did an open mouth grin look like? Um, and, and uh, so, uh, well, oh, I, I would like to quickly ask, does that mean that you guys took a lot of pictures of actors or anyone coming into the studio and just kind of as many smiles and scrunched up faces as possible that you were kind of going for and then mapping out those? We, uh, yeah, we did. We did do. Uh, we did do the research. Actually, on on Incredibles, I think it was more. Um, we hadn't at the time that we were doing those designs. We still didn't know who was going to do uh, Bob's voice. We were we were figuring that stuff out, and and uh, we do often you know refer to whatever actor is going to be doing the voice. But but more often than not, it's it's that actually happens too late in the process, and we've already designed the character. But the and, and maybe they're already built and articulated or rigged. Uh, that's when the controls are put into the, the digital model. Um, but, uh, but, but it's still, those actors can still influence basically the design because as the animators uh, who are the ones moving, you know, this stuff, making, making those characters act, uh, they can refer to those actors um, that are playing the part. And, and if there's cool little things that they do, uh, they're very distinctive to them that might make its way into the character, especially um, uh, stuff that they're doing during the performance because we, we do videotape uh, the actors while they're doing their voice recordings. And so whatever little thing they might do during that time might make its way into uh, the final animation. But uh, 
for for Bob, for instance, we uh, we actually just used each other largely. Uh, you know, we had we had the original designs that that Tony Fucilli and Teddy Newton and and you know Lou had all worked out, uh, and then my original sculptures uh, from that. Um, but then we did we had to in addition to the face we had to start figuring out what we were going to do with their muscles you know this is a movie that not only had normal humans but they had humans in tight you know uh, yeah, costumes yeah. so everything was going to be shown off and so we had to uh, I remember Tony Tony Fichilli and I got into uh, an, uh, one of the offices uh, and just started discussing anatomy and how how bio, how biomechanics works and how we could basically caricature that just like we do the designs for a, a character's basic form you know and so we would we would flex our forearm and 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 decide oh this can be represented with just one shape um but it's really important it deforms this way when the hand comes up and and so on and so forth and we just kind of went through the uh, the human body that way and uh, uh we did take uh, pictures of people and we did a lot more of that on ratatouille um, but we we do a lot with just people around the studio, and luckily Pixar's population uh, was continuing to get you know bigger and bigger, and so we had a lot of people to choose from, and we still do that today. Um, you know, if, if we're looking for a particular kind of person, we'll see if there's someone at Pixar that can that can fit that kind of description, um, and and we'll we'll study the way they they move and behave and and look. Um, yeah, I mean it must be. But yeah, it's, sorry, Karen. Oh, no, no, please go ahead. No, I mean, it must be really from sort of like a modeling reality point of view. It must the subtle nuances of things. It must really sort of change the way you view things. Like, for instance, I can imagine like textures of fabrics and things like that. And, you know, human hair and things like that. It must be. Yeah, it must be really interesting to view it from such a different perspective of the things we take for granted every day is like you have to go into it into vivid detail and understand the behavior of it. It must be it must be interesting. Yes. Um, I would also. Yeah want to ask um when you're animating these do you think of i'm going to start with the skeleton of uh my character and then build out from there or are you building out from let's say a shell and then kind of moving that shell in a 3d space i mean which process are you kind of referring to if there is one um the it's it's it a lot of the characters, especially the the ones prior to Brave, were were done where the, it's it's more like the shell is 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 moving. We we're looking at at the final surface that the audience sees, and that's the thing that we're we're um, moving around most. So we're just making sure that it you know aesthetically you know appeals to us. It looks natural. It looks right, and um, and it's a lot of it, a lot of that comes with this. Um, you know, communication that's so necessary between different departments. And in that case, it's more about, um, you know, the designers, uh, the, the animators, and especially the modeler, modelers and articulators, but they have to, they have to um, basically put in controls, you know, for instance, move an arm a certain way, see if the shoulder uh, looks right as it, as it, you know, uh, kind of, controls that transition from from the torso there's there's all kinds of subtler reactions uh that happen um you know muscles are driving that movement but but uh, the body as a whole might stretch as as like an arm is raised it'll stretch in a certain way so so the effect um of movement can't just be isolated 
you know, to that one limb, it, 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 it affects more of the body. And so anyway, that it mostly just has to simply be done and it moves from one position to the next and we evaluate whether or not it's convincing, whether or not it looks good and, um, and, and go from there. Um, but there are cases, uh, like on uh, brave where we started to, especially for the bear, uh, and the horse, we, we started we put a the, the the thing was designed first, and the shell of it is designed first. How we want that to look, and then we would build an internal skeleton uh, that that loosely mimicked what uh, what the you know real skeleton of a horse was. Uh, the loosely part is just simply we we you know there's a lot of information there, so we cut out what isn't necessary, but we also uh, simplify it so that the forms are easier to work with. Um, and then, and then we started laying muscle on top of the bones to see if we could drive some shapes on the surface from from these internal forms. And it it was really very effective on Brave. It, it added uh, a nice complexity to the whole thing. And then there's even other layers of movement that are thrown in on top of all of that. Uh, this this effect we call jiggle, which is just basically you know how a, how a heavy muscle or a heavy part of the body might, you know, uh, jiggle around, move around, uh, like if the character stomped or, or jumped or landed hard, mm-hmm. um, what would, what secondary actions would come into play that would have, uh, nothing to do with, um, a, a muscle driving a limb. It was just simply a reaction of the body's weight, you know, to an, to an external force or to the forces that, that are being generated by the movement itself. And, um, and you can animate that stuff, and we often do. We always make sure that the animators have control to make whatever changes they need. But what we've done a lot more as time has gone on is is use simulations, where where once we figure out the parameters of, of a specific kind of movement or form change, uh, we we plug that stuff in so it becomes kind of a, a, a physics that that mm-hmm. the that the forms will behave by. Um, yeah. Same thing happens with cloth, actually, too. So, oh. and hair. So, sort of, one thing I noticed from an audience point of view is, say, like a film like Wally, where you started introducing live action into the actual films. I can't remember the name of the actor, but he's he plays the dad out of Modern Family, um, of the of the son-in-law. I can't yeah. Remember his name. Uh, anyway, uh, it yeah, escapes yeah. me right now too. I'm sorry. Yeah. No. But so basically, how do you? Um, yeah, how do you how have you seen and how do you see sort of like the digital animation side of things evolving? I mean, you mentioned things like simulation and stuff like that. You know, how, how, yeah, mm-hmm. where do you see that sort of going as as time goes on and that merging between the real world or reality based world and the worlds that you create at Pixar? Um, I it's a uh, it's interesting. Uh, Pixar's path may go down a different path than than the movie than the technology uh, will. Uh, for for other kinds of films like uh, um, effects that you might do in a live action film, um, uh, maybe I'll just start with Pixar. As I think that uh, because we we are always going to try to avoid a thing uh, that you probably you may have heard of. It's called the Uncanny Valley. No, do and, tell. And I've not. Do tell. It's um it's basically this this idea that that uh, human perception is so uh, is so detailed. And, and most of it is subconscious that if you if you get too close to uh, like if you're trying to create a character and you get a little too close to uh, a realistic looking human, then as that character starts to move, uh, it can look very creepy to us because um, the complexity 
of you know blood rushing under the skin, the 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 amount of subsurface scattering that might happen because of uh, you know light uh, penetrating more translucent layers in your skin, uh, little twitches, little bits of moisture, um, all, all of the things that are very natural to us, even you know uh, changes in oil and and I think I mentioned flushing, but but it's so it's so subtle that that you know if, for instance if you meet a friend and they're, you notice that they're not looking well and you ask them you know how they're doing because they're not feeling so good and you pick up on a lot of subtle cues that'd be very hard to describe and um, oh and like so the it's, puffiness those, like the puffiness and oh just kind of like subtle cues like puffiness in the face or a red area that's kind of swelling maybe in the nose or those subtle cues yeah yeah and and, and all of these cues um it, if you can't if you can't match those exactly and right now that that level of complexity uh still hasn't been achieved then the, then the character kind of becomes repulsive a lot of people say that it looks like uh an animated corpse and so uh we kind of the way pixar looks at it is we want to create characters that feel natural but but we are an animation studio and we want them to be caricatured and we we look at it like if we wanted to get extremely natural uh, to even close to that point, then why not just hire actors and film them? So, uh, which, which would be much easier. So we're we're um, and 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 more appealing. So, and it's not, but it's not just because of that uh, being easy. We just there's an art to animation, and we actually believe that what that a lot of times what we do can actually um, kind of create a connection and an emotion that's stronger than it would have been in in the, at least in the stories we're trying to tell. Uh, it, it'll be stronger than than something that we might do with real actors, just because we can do those caricatures and we can touch people on a on a different level. Um, it's uh, there's been tests that have been done and and where you take a very very simplified face, kind of like the uh, uh, just just basically a circle with a line for a mouth and a couple of dots for eyes, and you can get people to to see how that character emotes very easily, you know, with a simple smile or whatever, and you can gradually increase the complexity all the way up to a very realistic photograph. Um, but, but you can, you, you know, we play anywhere in between those two extremes. We just avoid the final, uh, realistic human. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if you're, if we're talking about other films, uh, that, that, you know, other studios that are doing, uh, live action films, uh, I think, I think we are going to see more and more stuff uh, where where the actors are being uh, replicated, uh, in, you know, in the computer and and like right now it's being used a lot for stunt work that would be impossible to for a human to do like uh, like Spider Man, and uh -huh. um, and we're going to see more and more of that kind of thing happening. It was uh, I don't know if it was the first time it ever been used, but it was certainly introduced in a big way in Lord of the Rings, uh, where they you know they would they would build these digital characters uh, that could be seen from a distance, uh, you know, running across a bridge or whatever, and they'd be copies of their characters, but it made it possible to put them in a digital environment and also put them in safely. So sometimes an actor in front of a green screen is the way to do it, where you can composite that actor with uh, whatever environment you want, digital or otherwise. Um, but sometimes uh, the stunts just need to be done with, you know, an animated, you know, computer uh, figure. And so doing that kind of work is, is definitely going to continue, I think, to grow. And especially uh, now we have a lot of much more complete things we can do where we can capture 
the actor's performance, um, the color of his face, like what you would see photographically anyway, and it can be projected onto the the uh, the you know the digital form, so that it's always going to look natural because it it is actually an image from from the actor himself. Um, okay, well that's that's a great point to actually wrap up for uh, part one of the show. Uh, but when we come back in part okay. two, we'll be continuing uh, to talk a little bit more about Pixar and then we'll be going on to basically Paleo Mill and your work with dinosaurs. The Remotely Interested podcast is listener supported. You can support indirectly by following the links at remotely-interested.com or you can support directly by becoming a sponsor of the show. If you would like to become a sponsor of the show, follow the links on the remotely-interested.com website. Hello, sticker lovers. Stickerrobot.com is your place, your one go-to, to basically get stickers for your business. Sticker Robot has done stickers for Google. They've done stickers for Facebook. They've even done stickers for Hot Wheels. If you need stickers for anything in any walk of life, go to stickerrobot.com. Stickerrobot.com. 